So anyway, let's get started. As we've been going through Isaiah's prophecies, we've been giving our attention to identifying uh, in the text what it is that determines the interpretation of the prophecy. Uh, I hope you remember. We found that there's something in the text itself that tells us how to understand or how to interpret what exactly the author was talking about. Uh, We might call this thing uh, a key by which the author's meaning is unlocked to all of his, his readers. There's an indication there. And once we identify that key, we have to be careful to use it throughout the context so we don't stray from what the original author meant by what he said. Amen? Okay, if you come up with a meaning that the author did not mean, it just won't do you any good. Okay, you'll come to faulty conclusions, faulty applications, and uh, you won't really be understanding the word of God. So uh, when you find the key, it's important because it sets the boundaries for the meaning and then parameters for the actual application of what the author is talking about. It. With it, without it, you're more like a ship uh, without an anchor. You're like a guide without a compass. And, uh, so yeah. So we both discovered um, the key, and then we used it to interpret chapters one through four so far. Uh, the key was found in the first verse of chapter one and chapter two in the superscription. Okay? So let's look over them again to refresh our memories. In Isaiah 1.1, it says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. The key tells us that this vision that you're about to read, because remember, the superscription is not actually a part of the prophecy. It's kind of a preface to the prophecy that tells us what it is that we're going to encounter, what it is that the author is talking about. And so therefore, because it's concerning the capital city and the southern kingdom, uh, it cannot be concerning anything else or anyone else. Here's the one from chapter 2. It's very similar. Rather than the vision, it's the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning what? Judah and Jerusalem. Same thing. Uh, The superscription provides how we should interpret the text. So whatever interpretation we come to then must be about the southern kingdom and its capital city of Jerusalem. Okay. So just as to refresh our mind, so when we come to verse 2 of chapter 2, which refers then to the last days, we have to continue to apply this key. The rules do not change whether the prophecy is talking about present day or maybe a couple years in the future, or if it's the last days. It's the same thing. We don't change the rules in stride. Let me take a look at that verse with you again. He says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and he shall, and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Okay? So the Holy Spirit isn't talking about current events of Isaiah's time in Judah and Jerusalem or events that will be fulfilled within the next generation or so. He's addressing events that have to do with Jerusalem and Judah in the last days. Now, that's important to point out because there are some who believe that the interpretive key provided in the text does not apply to Judah and Jerusalem when the prophecy has to do with the end times. They believe that a different method of interpretation should be used to interpret the prophecy, which yields a totally different result. Now, the question I think that we should ask is, on what grounds should we adopt a different 
method of, an, of interpretation, what justifies the use of a different key that's not even found in the text itself. What, what difference would it make, or does it make, if it has to do with the distant future? If the Holy Spirit says in verse 1 that this prophecy pertains to Judah and Jerusalem, who are we to say that it doesn't? But many do, okay? So when the text says that the details pertain to Judah and Jerusalem in the last days, what should we do? We should apply it to that, okay, without any reservation. And we should be looking forward to their fulfillment in those places in the last days, exactly as the text says. So whether Isaiah is prophesying about Jude and Jerusalem during his lifetime, or in reference to the future, he always means, this is important, literal Judah and Jerusalem. And if it's literal Judah and Jerusalem, the events surrounding it should be understood as literal as possible. Remember, we're not saying that figures of speech don't exist. Those are a normal part of language. We're not saying that symbols and things like that, that we, we interpret those literally, but we understand what those symbols mean literally. Amen? We do it all the time in language. That's why I gave you that exercise. We don't mean that the figure of speech is literal, but we know what you mean literally by the figure of speech. Okay? All right, so with that as a review, what I'd like to do is I'd like to do a little exercise with you as we go through chapter five, okay? It's not a trick. I know you guys think that I would play tricks on you. I won't, okay? Uh, it's just an exercise to see if you've been paying attention. Um, now, I think that this kind of exercise is important because I don't think that pastors should get too used to just providing an interpretation for the people. I think that he should get into the habit of demonstrating how he came to the interpretation that he did. Is that fair enough? All right. As we do this, be mindful, it doesn't, the, the key, if you will, doesn't have to come at the beginning, because remember we looked at Revelation 1, where Jesus gives the interpretation after the prophecy, okay, so it can be anywhere in the text, and in chapter 5, I don't think it'll be hard to find. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 5, it's fairly long, you can stand if you want, uh, or you can remain seated and pay attention. 30 verses. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. I would sing it to you, but I don't sound like Steve when I sing. So, my well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, 
and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly, many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield one bath and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure, their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, And in the waste places of the fat ones, strangers shall eat. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets, for all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed swiftly, No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt of their loins be loosed, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, whose arrows are sharp and all the bows bent. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. In that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it addresses your righteous indignation. And Lord, I pray that as we go through the text, we could, of course, understand better your holiness and your justice.
we would be warned against injustice and unrighteousness. And Lord, as we've uh, also talked about um, just the, the whole method of interpretation, Lord, help us to be attentive to your word that we might interpret things correctly. If we don't, we won't even hear your word. And Lord, we need to hear your voice. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. You guys have endurance. Yeah, Isaiah 5. Yeah, so where's the key? Which verse? Verse 3? Okay, 3 is uh, God asking Jerusalem and Judah to, um, you know, judge between me and my vineyard. Okay, but who said verse 7? Okay, verse 7. So verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. Righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So God's vineyard that Isaiah is talking about, it's the house of Israel, okay, the children of Jacob, and the men of Judah, all right? So the vine dresser in the song expected good grapes, but got wild grapes. What do the wild grapes represent? Oppression or bloodshed. The Hebrew word is ambiguous, okay? It can be uh, oppression by way of bloodshed, and then a cry for help, okay? What do the good grapes represent? Justice and righteousness. That's right. Isaiah is giving us the interpretation of the song, the interpretation. God planted, as it were, his people in the land of Canaan. He established them as a nation. He gave them his covenant. He prescribed them the law with the expectation that they would honor and they would obey him. That's the, the, uh, the good grapes, but they disobeyed and corrupted themselves with idolatry and evil and injustice. That's the bad grapes. And in God's word, in the law, it says that if you trust and obey me and be faithful, I will bless you. Uh, But if you rebel against me, then you will suffer a curse. So yeah. So the hermeneutic of chapter one and two, right, came before the vision, essentially telling you what you were about to read, But here in chapter 5, the hermeneutic comes after the illustration saying, uh, this is what you just read, or this this is what it means what you just read. And by the way, that's all that it means. That's all that it means. In uh, hermeneutics, which is the the art of interpretation, we, we say there's one interpretation of a text, but there are many applications of a text, okay? Many implications. So stick to the text, and you, you can't go wrong, okay? Yeah. But now, we want to use this same key for the whole book of Isaiah, unless there's something in the text itself that provides something new or something different that would suggest that we should use it, okay? And as we go through the whole book of Isaiah... Uh, I'll point those out, or maybe I'll even ask you guys to point it out to me. Is that fair? Okay. Because we, we want to know what the text says we ought to be uh, using to interpret any, any given passage. And I think there's a few. Uh, we'll point those out. So back to chapter 5. After this song, which is, of course, an illustration, the chapter unravels uh, with six woes uh, to who? 
Judah, okay, and the house of Israel, okay, it's synonymous there, and, uh, and then all of these judgments will follow uh, because of what they've done. So let's take a look here. Verse 8, he begins by saying, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. The first woe is actually a violation of Leviticus 25 uh, regarding the year of Jubilee. Okay? In Israel, houses could be permanently sold within a walled city, but property, whether it's a house or a field outside the city wall, it could not be sold permanently. On the year of Jubilee, all property outside of a walled city had to be returned to the original family that it was allotted to. But the people of Judah and of Jerusalem, they weren't doing that. What was happening is powerful people were seizing the land and they were not restoring it. Okay? And it, they were probably seizing the land by bloodshed because okay? nobody just gives up their land. Right? Right. Okay. Micah, the prophet, he was a... Um, a contemporary prophet to Isaiah, he talks about the same thing. He says this. He says, they covet fields and take them by violence, also houses, and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Notice the reference to the inheritance. In Israel, it's not so much an issue of the inheritance that your father gave you, it's actually a legal thing that God gave each of the families when Israel came into Canaan. Okay, so it has ancient roots uh, in regard to your, your inheritance. So there's this strict violation of Leviticus 25. Uh, also, of course, people are being murdered, people are being cheated, so the law has just been completely thrown out and uh, it's left the people destitute. They, lo- they lost their homes, They lost their fields by which they make a living and how they provide food for themselves and their families. And uh, instead of abiding by the law and protecting people, the powerful have just cast it all aside and they're oppressing the people. So God says to them, woe to you. And then as a result of their action, he begins to pronounce these judgments. Isaiah says, in my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly, Many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones, without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. So because of the oppression of these people, God told Isaiah, I'm going to judge them. Okay? It's going to be, uh, this Judah and Jerusalem is going to be desolate. He says these houses will be vacant, the ones that were seized. Uh, the fields that they've confiscated would essentially be barren. Now, I know that there's some terms in here that we don't use today uh, for measuring liquid and uh, dry goods. Um, 10 acres of grapes here would essentially yield 20 pints of juice. 10 acres, 5 gallons. Now, one of my vines will produce 5 gallons. So 10 acres, a 10-acre vineyard, says, this is what you have coming to you because of your deeds. And if they planted 354 quarts of wheat, they would only get 23 quarts back. That's, that's devastating. You see, they're not going to, because of what they've done, they're not going to have enough to feed themselves for the year, and then they'll have nothing to replant for the following year. 
Okay? They seized the land, they worked the land, but got almost nothing from the land. And they wouldn't even be able to live in these beautiful homes that they seized. This is the judgment that God is pronouncing on these wicked people. And then Isaiah is going to explain in a moment how that exactly happened. He says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. Uh, That means drinking early in the morning. Uh, It's a college town. Who continue until night, till wine inflames them, the harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute, and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hands. So people will be feasting, they'll be enjoying their festivals, but they will not regard the Lord, who is the God of the festival, uh, to whom all the festivals point. Uh, It'll be not about the Lord, but about the party. I saw somebody had mentioned one year to me that um, uh, Memorial Day had become a day of just drinking and barbecue. And uh, they, they pay no tribute, uh, there's no appreciation in their hearts for the sacrifice of the people that um, fought for the country, died for the country, and then also they spend no time educating their children of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and all of that. So the people of Judah, they are engaging in the festivals, but they're giving no thought to the God of the festival. He says, therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. So that explains why the houses have become desolate and the fields barren. Okay? Israel will be invaded, and uh, not Israel. Israel was already gone, the northern kingdom, uh, to, to Assyria. Uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, will be invaded, and the people will be taken captive. That is the next big thing on what we would call the prophetic calendar for Judah the Babylonian invasion, and the Jews being taken into that empire. There's going to be no one really left to occupy and uh, no one to work the fields. It's going to be ugly. But not everyone will be taken captive. He says, therefore, as a result of all this, Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. So those that aren't taken captive, uh, many of the others will just be killed. And Sheol is a reference to the world of the dead, that is, where the dead reside. It's another word for the grave. He says, people shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled, but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. So there'll be a humbling of the people and there'll be an exalting of God. God will be exalted. He goes on, he says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope that say, Let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. So there's a figure of speech in there, isn't it? You can't draw sin by a rope. Amen? So it's, it's trying to communicate something. Uh, probably in the day of Isaiah, that was a common figure of speech that people knew. Uh, I think what it's suggesting is that these people's lives are characterized by sin. Uh, everywhere they go, every thought they have, everything they do uh, is, is governed by just a sinful disposition. 
And these great sinners are the ones who arrogantly are, are, are putting into question God's ability to affect their, their national and social situation. They're saying, let's see it. Let's see you do it. We'll believe it when we see it. You know, this, this arrogance, it's, it's the sin of testing God, of, of challenging him. It really went well for Israel in the wilderness. But the thing is, is that God only owes the rebel uh, what he has promised the rebel, and that's judgment. And so God's judgment here, he's only being faithful to his covenant promise to punish Israel when they violate his law. That's what this is. God always keeps his word. Uh, His word of promise to faithful Israel was blessing. His word of promise to unfaithful Israel was cursing. You remember the cursings and the blessings. Uh, Next to woe. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You guys have heard this phrase, calling good evil and evil good many times. Most people don't know the context in which it's found. I'm not saying you don't, uh, but people quote it. And it's okay to quote it in the context they do because it certainly has uh, application in, in many different ways. But Israel has turned morality upside down. They've gotten so wicked uh, that they're now calling good evil and evil uh, good. And I, of course, we can't help but uh, think how our nation has so many things in common um, with Israel at this time. We say that abortion is, is what? I mean, after Roe versus Roe was overturned, uh, listening in on um, various abortion, pro-abortion rallies, I heard people say, abortion is beautiful. Abortion is good. Uh, that was actually spray-painted on Calvary Chapel Olympia. And, uh, you know, we think that dispatching the elderly uh, or the developmentally disabled is, is dignified. You know, the drag queen hour for five-year-olds at the local library is progressive. Uh, that experimenting on children with puberty blockers and irreversible surgeries is wonderful. Uh, we have this going on in our culture like never before, and uh, it's insane. And the common ground of immorality uh, that we have with, with Judah at this time is striking. And I can't imagine that God is going to tolerate us for much longer. At least I hope he doesn't. I'm praying uh, for him to come just as we've already talked about in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, uh, which will bring an end to man's rebellion uh, to all of the evil that we see in the world and the suffering. Greg was wearing his shirt yesterday, Mar- or the other day, Maranatha, uh, come Lord Jesus. It is biblical to pray that. Next, woe. He says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. You ever met somebody like that? <laughs> woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Okay. So Judah has become proud, intoxicated, and corrupt. Uh, men mighty and valiant at drinking. Uh, it's the same kind of boasting that goes on in every bar, uh, fraternity, and, and military barracks. Nothing like watching a bunch of Joes argue over who can drink the most alcohol. So when an entire culture of men measure themselves by how much alcohol they can drink rather than how well they can, you know, do their job, provide for their families, and raise their kids. That culture is doomed. It's done. And when the leaders within a culture are so busy, 
you know, busy covering up the crimes of their companions or of those who have the most money and are condemning the righteous in the place of the wicked, that society is in serious trouble. That nation, it needs overhauled. And that's exactly what's on God's mind at this point. He is prepping Babylon uh, as this prophecy is being given uh, for judging Israel. He says, therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So desolations are coming. Uh, Israel, it's hard not to say Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom at this time, had really become like Israel in the book of Judges, where every man was doing what was right in his own sight, which wasn't right at all. As I tell people, you know, my kids love the book of Judges, but not the end of Judges, because that wickedness comes out so heavy in the end and the atrocities that they commit. And uh, Judah at this time, and in a few more years from now, they will actually commit sins worse than the Canaanites. They will begin to burn their children in the fire to Molech. And then God says, you're out of here. The, the land will vomit them out. Verse 25, he says, Therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Did they literally tremble? Probably not. There might have been an earthquake, but probably not. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. One of my favorite Bible scholars uh, says that Isaiah is speaking in the prophetic present. The prophetic present. He's speaking in the present tense of what will happen in the future. So imagine being Isaiah, and it says he saw the word of the Lord. He saw in a vision what would unravel. And so, you know, he's writing down what he saw. So he writes down in the present tense of what's actually going to happen in the future. And sometimes he even looks back uh, and, and says things in the past tense of what he saw in his vision. It's very interesting. I've never had a vision. I don't know what it would be like to have a vision, but I can only imagine. So the invaders, they've slaughtered the people and they've scattered their bodies in the streets. And I think it's this it's these kinds of things that we have to keep in mind for the context when it comes to Daniel and Michelle, Azariah, and Hananiah. Because these are the kinds of things that they witnessed uh, as they were being taken captive. They watched the, the city of Jerusalem burn, the temple burn. They watched the cities being pillaged, the women being violated, uh, all of that. And, uh, and Isaiah will be the one that tells us that uh, Daniel and his friends, because they're from the household of Judah, they're made eunuchs. And then they're taken to Babylon and they're made eunuchs in the king's court. So the, all of this plays into the context of the book of Daniel. And, so, and I think it's important because when Daniel then goes to uh, Babylon, he becomes the faithful servant of the one who commanded all of that. And then it's through Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar comes to faith in the Most High God. It's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That's for the book of Daniel. We'll come, I've taught Daniel once before. We'll teach it again someday. So listen to what God, Isaiah says God will do. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar, 
and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed, swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt of their loins be loosed, nor the strap of their sandals be broken. So the nations will not come against Judah on their own accord. God is going to draw them to Judah as the instrument of his judgment. Anybody recall one of those things he uses to draw them? The wealth of Judah. Somebody takes some of the ambassadors from Babylon into the treasury. And then those ambassadors go back to Babylon and say, guess what's up in Judah? Yeah, very interesting. Speaking of those nations whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent, their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like the young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. In that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. So the Babylonians are going to come to Judah as an unstoppable force. And as the inhabitants of of Judah are being carried away, nobody will come to the rescue. There will be nobody to, to resist them. This is the fury of God against his own people. And then the land as a result, as Isaiah has said, will be in this sad, desolate state. The once beautiful land of the king will be left in darkness. Now, uh, it does say that uh, later on that they left the lowest class of people in the land to just try to, you know, keep the fields somewhat alive, to... Uh, not let wild beasts overrun the land. But they weren't very good at it. Uh, Judah was overrun with briars and essentially became a den for jackals and wild animals. Yeah. And what's so sad about this is that no nation on the planet, no country in the world had the potential that Israel did simply because God's promise of blessings to it for faithfulness. They had uh, the potential of of, of just the most amazing divine blessing. They had everything available to them because of God's promise. But instead they rebelled and they incurred, incurred the wrath of God. Okay, now, next week uh, we're going to do Isaiah 6, which is Isaiah's call to ministry, one of the most uh, famous passages in the book of Isaiah. And then what we're going to do is I'm not going to go through every chapter. I wanted to use tonight's chapter as, as an exercise. And, uh, but after that, we're going to look at the, the messianic highlights, prophecies concerning Messiah. And then we'll look at their fulfillment in the New Testament. And we'll look at some of the uh, places where the narrative is inserted into the book of Isaiah of things that lead up to the captivity itself. And uh, we'll go from there. So we'll begin to do more Uh, isolated studies with some survey, and then we'll rapidly get through Isaiah. Fair enough? All right, go ahead and stand up, and we'll pray. Father, we love you, and as Greg and I were talking today, um, Israel is still in a lot of trouble with you. They're they're under divine chastisement, and it, it is. It's a demonstration of the thoroughness of your judgment. But as Paul says in Romans 11, we're not to boast against the natural branches, which is ethnic Israel. 
but you've actually called us to provoke the Jew to jealousy so that they might be reconciled to their God. So Lord, help us not to be arrogant in regard to Israel, but to pray for their redemption as you have promised to do in, uh, in Romans 11 and, and in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and so many other places, Lord. And especially, Lord, as we see uh, the world come to this place where it's at, and uh, we seem to be right at the threshold of so many things unraveling uh, that, you have, that you've talked about in your word. And with that said, Lord, we, we want to be ready, as John says. We do not want to be ashamed at your coming, but we want to be living for you. So Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.